the presidency and the press. Our guest this week is Martha Joint Kumar, director of the White House Transition Project. She's also professor emeritus at Towson University in Maryland. She carefully tracks presidents and their administrations and joins us to talk about the current Trump White House, staff turnovers, and media accessibility. And she provides a historical perspective, including changes to the daily briefings and how presidents deal with the White House press corps, from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. Martha Kumar, you have spent more time in the White House briefing room than most regular White House reporters. As you look at this administration, and let's begin with staffing, it has dominated cable TV over the last year and a half, the Trump presidency. But what did the numbers tell you in terms of turnover in this administration? The turnover is high, and that has consequences for for policy, for everything the president does, for the ability to uh, look ahead and do long-range planning. There, um, there are a group of staff that are called commission staff, and those are ones that are mentioned in law and in budget as the top level. And of those, there are 25 assistants to the president, Although you can uh, add a, a few more if you're not if you don't have all the s- people taking salaries, and then deputy assistants to the president and special assistants. The special assistants uh, implement um, uh, events and that sort of thing. The deputies are looking at alternative policies, and the assistants to the presidents are the principals. And if you look at the original 31 people that were at the top level with the title uh, or with a title of uh, counselor and made the highest salary, or in Ivanka, Trump, Jared Kushner, and Reed Cordish's uh, cases, they didn't take salaries. If you look at all of the assistants to the president, the core leadership, 58%. Um, are no longer there. There's one person that's still there, but his um, job description has changed, and that's Keith Kellogg, who no longer is the um, uh, the chief of staff to the um, the NSC advisor or the executive director of the office. Now he's on Pence's staff. He still has the title assistant to the president. But all those people have left. And what that means is when you have new people coming in, there's a learning curve. You have to know uh, and learn what it is that the president wants to do and then refashion how you're going to do it. So it makes it very difficult for long-range planning. And we should point out this is very careful and precise research that you have done, and we'll talk about some other other projects that you've been involved with. But how does this compare to Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush? Um, uh, the same figures. I, I haven't done the same figures yet. Um, I'm going to do it. But their turnover is nowhere near as high. They kept most of the people. They had some changes in their political people. Um, but uh, who were at the top, but they kept um, they kept their uh, their basic uh, staff uh, for um, at least uh, two years. So you would have the um, chief of staff um, would uh, would stay, and in uh, George W. Bush's case, he stayed into the second term. Um, And that allows for the development of a decision-making process 
and uh, real assignments of who's involved in developing policy, um, communicating to those outside of the um, of the White House, and uh, and then figuring out once you get policy through how it's going to be implemented. There are three basic types of offices in a White House, and in this one, all of them have been affected, I think, by turnover. Those are process offices, uh, ones that do internal work, like the staff secretary, who is responsible for all the paper that goes into and out of the Oval Office, um, the personnel, um, the council's office, and uh, then you've got the policy offices like the National Economic Council, the NSC, domestic policy. And then you have offices that uh, deal with relationships. And that one, I think, has been heavily affected. Um, and that would be uh, relationships with the media, uh, with um, different levels of government, governors and mayors and then with interest groups. There's been a lot of changes there, plus some of the people heading those operations do not have the title assistant to the presidents. They're deputies. And if you're a deputy, uh, traditionally you're not in the same meeting as the principals. Martha Kumar, let's talk about two high-profile positions. First, the White House Chief of Staff. What's the job title? The The job title tells you that this is a management position and that you're managing um, the, uh, the work that the president's going to do, figuring out how to best achieve his objectives. It's not your own viewpoint as a chief. It is carrying out what it is that the president wants. And one of the aspects of that job, when you look at people who have been successful in it, like Leon Panetta, for Clinton and Josh Bolton for uh, George W. Bush, um, and I think Dennis McDonough for um, President Obama. Um, when you look at what they did, you the way they organized, you could see that they brought three elements together, politics, policy, and publicity. And you need all three of them represented in that office. And the reason why is that each helps test the other on, a, on a, uh, an initiative or a piece of legislation you're sending up. When you're talking about it, um, do you have the politics right? Can you get it through? Is it worth the battle? Um, is the, if you're working on the publicity and you find it hard to explain, then that tells you that the policy is not mature. And so you really need all three of those working together. And they did that um, under all those successful chiefs. So you, you look at the number of assistants to the president under Dennis McDonough, you see all uh, three of those areas represented. And you certainly saw it with Leon Panetta. He had a, a morning meeting before the senior staff meeting that was a management, his management team. And he had well organized the internal process, the three areas that you know was telling you about relationships and and uh, policy and and process. He had control of all three of those, and so was able to deal with Congress at a point that was um, uh, worked 
uh, for President Clinton. Why do you think the president's first chief of staff with Donald Trump, Reince Priebus, failed? I think with, uh, with President Trump, your personal relationship with him is the key. He has to trust people. He doesn't come from the political world uh, where he has experience um, uh, dealing with, uh, with people who also have power. He's used to being in a situation where he controlled the elements of the deals that he was in. And when you're president, you don't have that control. Congress has the power to appropriate. Congress has the power to legislate, to declare war. Um, and you have to persuade the bureaucracy to implement the legislation. And the courts can turn you down. And that's very frustrating for him. And usually people learn that at a lower level um, of elected office because people who've come to the presidency have uh, worked in elected office before and have known what it is to be in a situation of shared power. And uh, in Trump's case, uh, he hasn't. And he's used to having people who know him uh, around him and um, uh, are loyal to him. And loyalty means doing what uh, he wants to do. Your research also indicates that one of the more stable offices in the White House is the Office of Legislative Affairs. And earlier this year, I talked to Mark Short about his job and his responsibilities. Here's part of what he had to say. There is no typical day here. It, uh, you know, I think today was world with the 24-7 news cycle. It pretty much goes all the time. I'd say that probably most of it begins with uh, checking the president's Twitter account and see what's on his mind for the morning. And I think that obviously influences a lot of this town and this country today is that the American people get to see and hear firsthand what's on his mind and what he's thinking. And so uh, that does influence a lot of what happens on Capitol Hill. But we have morning meetings uh, roughly starting at 7.30 or 8 o'clock with senior staff, legislative affairs. We get together right after that to download to everybody and make sure as they head up to the Hill, they all know their assignments for the day. They all know their portfolios and uh, where the White House is going and what's percolating up within Congress. So we have as many ways as like an in intel committee where you're figuring out, here's the information that's coming up that we're hearing from staffers on the Hill as to what legislative item will be coming next month or next week. Our conversation with Mark Short, the Director of Legislative Affairs at the White House, and that interview is available on our website at cspan.org. We continue our conversation with Martha Kumar as she researches this administration, a comparison to past administrations and White House turnover. Why is Legislative Affairs a more stable shop in the White House? Uh, Mark Short had uh, experience on the Hill. He, had, um, uh, he knows uh, the Vice President very well. And um, uh, he put together his staff right at the beginning and, um, and was off and running early. And that's what, uh, what they needed. And they needed somebody who knew the Hill and who knew the people on the Hill. And um, I think that um, the, the president had trust in him through uh, the vice president and um, uh, that he also had connections with outside groups that could be useful for the administration. He had worked for the Koch brothers. And uh, so he knew not only the Congress, but he knew groups on the outside, conservatives, groups that you need to get uh, behind you with le legislation.
You are also the director of the White House Transition Project, which is what? It is a group of political scientists who study the presidency in the White House. It's a couple of dozen people. And uh, what we've been doing since uh, the late 90s was prepare information for people who come into the White House. When they come in, there is no manual telling them what to do or how their offices functioned in the past. And White House offices are more similar than they are different because they have the same kinds of uh, functions and the same kinds of constituents uh, that are going to be asking for certain for certain things so what we do is we interview people who have headed the office and have served in the various offices like take for example the staff secretary there's not a lot written about the staff secretary or even the white house council and so what we've done is talk to people about the functions of the office the responsibilities of the directors, see how that has changed over time or what the continuities are, because they're mostly continuities, and what they've thought the opportunities and hazards were when they held the post. So it's useful for people coming in because it gives you um, quickly a view, an objective view of how the place has worked. We also provide along with it organization charts of the offices we study. And those, I think, are particularly useful to see have they been organized the same way. Legislative affairs, for example, has been organized the same way. It breaks down House and Senate. Um, And uh, some have changed, like uh, press office, There are times when you have media affairs in it and sometimes when it's in the Office of Communications. Um, The Chief of Staff's office has been organized um, uh, differently. Um, So you can look at those organization charts and tell, does it make, um, uh, what is the clearest fit for you and for uh, for your um, situation? And an additional benefit that those... uh, charts have, which I point out to people, is they have names with them for who held the job um, in a particular year. So if you're, like, say, for example, if you're in the communications office now um, and you're thinking about um, more people and who you might hire, you can go back and look at who served in that the positions you're interested in in the Bush administration, H.W. Bush, Reagan, um, all along the line. Well, let me follow up on that point. And you mentioned uh, Josh Bolton, who was President George W. Bush's chief of staff during the second part of his second administration. And he was instrumental in planning the transition between George W. Bush and ultimately Barack Obama. Here's what he had to say. I was the chief of staff for the transition out of the Bush administration. So the, the first transition out of government after 9-11. And it was, I think, with 9-11 in mind that President Bush called me into his office a year before the, uh, the inauguration of the new president, uh, in fact, more than a year before, uh, and said that he, regardless of who wins this election, he wants to make sure that we attempt to execute the best, most efficient, most useful transition in American history. 
especially because this will be the first transition in modern American history um, during which the American homeland is known to be under threat. And he was, he was very concerned uh, about the period of vulnerability that our country goes through at that, uh, at that moment of transition. Those comments of Josh Bolton, White House Chief of Staff during the George W. Bush administration, and Martha Kumar, what role did he play and others in the Bush administration in preparing for the post-9-11 presidential transition? Uh, planning for a transition comes from the president and the president's interest in, um, in getting things started. And President Bush talked to uh, Josh Bolton in, the, in December of, um, of the last year, and he uh, told him that he wanted the best transition uh, possible. This is a year ahead of their uh, leaving, and uh, he wanted the best transition possible, and that with two wars uh, on, the, the, um, the consequences are great of that passage of power. Uh, so he told um, Bolton that he could, um, he could uh, handle it, and if he needed uh, any decisions from him on things, he would uh, uh, talk to him about it. So what Bolton decided to do was work early, and the laws didn't provide for a early start to a transition, but he decided to do it. In July, he brought in... Um, uh, July of 2008, he, he brought in both sides and um, uh, and had them, uh, McCain and, and Obama uh, people, in and talked to them about um, about appointments process and the necessity of getting people started early. And in order to do that, they needed to have security clearances. And so what he recommended, which was based on the 9-11 Commission uh, recommendation, they sent, they told both sides they could send names over to uh, the FBI and uh, have people cleared so that they could start right after the election. And that's what, uh, and that's what they did. And the Obama people sent in um, names of a couple hundred people. And so they were willing to start early. They also talked about creating a new piece of software that would handle all the resumes that were bound to come in, which was a couple hundred thousand in a short period of time. And how do you handle that? And you obviously need a good piece of software to do that. Was that duplicated with President Obama and in preparations with either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? What, uh, what ended up happening is that they were so successful in, uh, in planning the operation that Josh Bolton and his team was, and Steve Hadley also was working on uh, preparing information on, on issues uh, that they thought were in the NSC and the intelligence and foreign policy communities thought were important that um, the work they did uh, was uh, was so good that uh, Congress uh, then passed a statute that called on an administration to uh, create a White House Transition Coordinating Council and uh, to do that uh, six months before the election 
and then they also had an agency transition directors council that uh, that was created uh, by that legislation at the same time period which i believe um, was uh, may 6 they created them by may 6 so they had government operations really up and running the white house had to had to provide the leadership and then the agency transition directors council was uh was headed by the deputy for management at omb uh andrew mayock and then tim horn who was the federal transition coordinator uh who was from gsa let me turn to white house briefings and the president's communications shop. In a recent Washington Journal interview, we sat down with former press secretary Sean Spicer, and I asked him whether or not he thinks the briefings are still relevant. Here's what he had to say. No, I think that uh, I think that the press office uh, should be available as they are to give the the press uh, responses and, and updates as to what's going on in the White House. But I think the daily briefing has has sort of you know, worth re-examining. Uh, the Department of Defense and others don't always have a daily briefing of, of on an on-camera sense, and I think a morning gaggle um, and then, you know, selected days where you do an on-camera one is, is worth it, but the briefing has become more of a show than a, an a outlet of information for the media, and I think we should provide the media on a daily basis answers to the questions that they have, updates to issues that are ongoing. But I think that the time and effort that it takes to get that briefing going and what you get on the outside, uh, you know, in return is not worth it anymore. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer on C-SPAN's Washington Journal and joining us here in our studios in Washington, Martha Kumar. She is a professor emeritus at Towson State University, director of the White House Transition Project. You are in the briefing room when these take place. Are they still relevant? Are they still important? Are they useful? They are useful. I've been in that briefing room since December of 1975 was the first time that I came into a White House. And so I've come and gone for each president since then and each press secretary. And I uh, think it was important then. It's important now because it puts a White House on record uh, for uh, their positions on issues. It is also important for everyone in the White House because they learn what it is that reporters and uh, the public as well uh, wants to know about. And so they have to respond, and they know that they have to respond. And so if you're press secretary and you're getting a lot of questions um, that maybe inside they don't want to answer, you can say to the president or say, say to the chief of staff and to, to, to others, these are questions are going to come up every day, and it's going to be on television, and we need to have answers. And as you know, Mike McCurry, former White House press secretary under Bill Clinton, said that his biggest regret, opening it up to C-SPAN cameras. We cover the briefings live on television. Oh, it's, it's inevitable. <laughs> There's a, he, he, may, he may regret it, but uh, uh, it was inevitable. That uh, that they go on uh, that they go on online on on television. The briefings, though, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders are much shorter. George Condon has been doing some research, and he said that if you take out the opening statements, the briefings tend to be anywhere from twelve to eighteen minutes. 
Yes. Um, so one of the things I do uh, in the briefing is uh, when I'm there is I uh, do a, a time uh, study for each reporter. How long does each reporter get? And so there, there. Uh, I was uh, writing the other day that uh, uh, that I think it was um, last week or earlier this week. She had a briefing um, that was. 11 minutes and um and she covered 18 reporters so that's really you're doing um a, a speed a speed through uh the briefing room and i had gone back to a josh Ernest briefing uh, who was the last uh, press secretary for obama and he too had had 18 reporters instead of 11 minutes he had no statement and he took 70 minutes to go through 18 reporters. Um, so hers are, are very quick. Um, and, um, and I th but I think even so, um, she has to be put on the record. The White House is being put on the record in those, uh, in those sessions. But you and mentioned being quick because she often seems in a hurry. We have to move along. We have to keep going. What's the rush? Um, well, she wants. She doesn't want this to be open ended. So you'll often notice when you look at the schedule. Say the president has a three o'clock event, um, as he did re recently, and um, and so she has two o'clock for the briefing. And so I know in this particular instance, reporters were saying, definitely it's going to be late. Because, and then maybe somebody else will come out as well as a guest, and then at the end, um, she will say, "Well, we need to go through this quickly because the president has an event at three o'clock." So it always get it's it gets backed up in that in that way. Um, but having people, other people come out, um, I think has been very useful. Uh, there was a time when they were bringing cabinet secretaries over. And these are the people who know about policy. And um, they're very useful, I think, to, um, to have to explain it. It's better than having the press secretary explain it. Because a press secretary inevitably does not know um, economic and, and financial issues the same way that the Secretary of the Treasury is or the Director of OMB or the Commerce Secretary and also foreign policy. So you need to bring out some of the, um, of the people, either the NSC specialists or uh, occasionally the Secretary of State comes in, also the National Security Advisor. Let me turn to another aspect of your research, which is, I think, fascinating, and that is just how accessible this president, Donald Trump, is to the White House press corps, taking questions, holding news conferences, sitting down for in-depth interviews. What have you found? Uh, I find that um, he has developed a style in his communications, and uh, part of that is in the morning he tweets and he sets the narrative for the day. And then he'll do short question and answer sessions, like at the top of a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. Maybe he's meeting with automakers, uh, and he'll take, take a few questions. Sometimes when he's leaving 
the the White House by helicopter, he will come over and respond to reporters' questions. So for some reporters, that works out very well. Uh, for wire service reporters, for example, who need thing, a constant uh, feed of information and what the president's thinking, and also for television, that, that works well. As far as digging down on policy, uh, those short question and answer sessions, of which he's had many, um, in his uh, first um, uh, his first 465 days, his press conferences, he's only had, which is an in-depth look in policy, because reporters can ask you anything, and you have to be prepped on a lot of different things. And uh, in his case, he's had one. He had one in February That's of it. 2017, and he has not repeated it. Um, but they require a lot of work. In Ronald Reagan's case, I've gone through his diary, and he would uh, prepare for a couple of days. He would have uh, briefings uh, from uh, the um, his economic advisors, uh, his national security people, and also he would discuss foreign policy. So he would get a, a good read, which is one of the reasons you want to have press conferences, because you want to have the president constantly up to date. And so he would do also uh, run-throughs in the White House Theater, because he then developed nighttime uh, East Room press conferences, which were a national event. In George uh, W. Bush's case, um, if you remember when you saw that he was meeting with his economic advisors, and then the next day he was meeting with foreign policy people, and then uh, with uh, national security, you knew that a press conference was probably coming. And so it's useful for staff it's useful for um, for their relationship with the bureaucracy because they can reach out and say, we need to know what's going on. We need to know the bad news as well as the good news. And so they are, um, I think, critical, particularly the ones that are, uh, that are solo sessions. Now, Trump has held the same, around the same number of, of um joint sessions with a foreign leader. But there, you, um, you get statements, maybe seven, eight minutes from each of the leaders, the president and his visitor. And then uh, you have two questions from the U.S. side and two questions from the foreign reporters. And while we tend to think of it as just the president getting two questions, he definitely gets four because in uh, Trump's case, a lot of the visiting um, journalists will also um, ask him sharp questions, like the first time that Angela Merkel came. And Angela Merkel, when she came, uh, the, uh, the German uh, reporters uh, asked tougher questions. Well, let's say they asked very tough questions. <laughs> so he doesn't he doesn't like doing those solo sessions. Uh, so he likes something that you don't have to prepare for. Um, you can talk off of, of of what you're thinking at the moment, and um, and then you can have on the if, uh, if you've been on the South Lawn when he comes out, um, there are people yelling questions from everywhere. So you can determine what questions you also feel like answering and for how long you want to answer them. 
in his um, interviews, uh, again, he can talk to those people he wants to talk to. In his uh, first 100 days, I would say he was um, uh, more likely to talk to a variety of um, reporters, a variety of news organizations like Lester Holt on NBC. And his um, second 100 days, that would be the first 100 days of his second year of 2018, he was less likely to do that. He did fewer interviews, and he increased his number of short question and answer sessions. But he also has reduced his speeches, and he gives fewer uh, speeches than other presidents have done. And I think that puts a particular pressure on the press secretary because he isn't going out and explaining his policies and uh, exactly what he wants in them. Um, like, how are you going to get that money for the border wall? And um, uh, so the questions then come into the briefing and into the press secretary. But I think the briefing is a, is a very effective reminder to a White House of what issues are out there and what they need to deal with. And nobody follows this more closely than Martha Joyne Kumar. Thank you very much for stopping by our C-SPAN studios. Oh, it's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. We hope you subscribe to this podcast and find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. 